Howdy folks and welcome to the weekly dose of Euphoria podcast. For any new listeners out there, my name is Matt Sapala and I am your host. Guys, this week I was fortunate enough to sit down with Dr. Brett Jarrods, who is a well-renowned chiropractor globally, but spends most of his time practicing in Australia and educating and empowering other health professionals, both in the United States and here in Australia. Brett has a background in professional sport and now dedicates his time to understanding and comprehending the amazing system we call the human body. As you could probably imagine, both Brett and I could have chatted for hours about the ins and outs of the body and how it operates, but we decided to dive deep into the concussion realm this week, which I think you guys will really, really enjoy. Understanding and treating concussion is an absolute passion of Brett's and it's evident during today's episode. This topic of conversation is something that's gaining a lot of traction these days and in particular through the elite sport pathways both in Aussie rules football and American football over in the US. Brett takes us through the process from sustaining that trauma all the way to recovery and shares us some mind-blowing pieces of evidence through today's episode, including the fact that you don't have to be hit in the head to sustain a concussion mind-blowing i know because we often associate concussion with trauma to the head brett is an absolute wealth of knowledge and it makes it his life work to understand all the facets of the human body and how they correlate with one another brett thank you so much for your time i'm so grateful for the opportunity to pick your brain and share it with the euphoria health community well that's enough for me folks i'll see you on the other side Brett Jaros, welcome to the Weekly Dose of Euphoria podcast, mate. Awesome to have you on. Oh, thanks for having me. Definitely, mate. I'm super, super excited to pick your brain. You're an absolute wealth of knowledge and, and doing some incredible things in the allied health space in terms of injury prevention and injury management, and now heading into you know a whole holistic lifestyle management as well. So I'm really, really pumped to get into the podcast, mate. But for my listeners at home, can you run us through your background and your qualifications just to paint the picture? Um, so long story short, I used to be fortunate enough to play sport at a semi-elite, pretty elite level. And in the very early 2000s, started to have a couple of injuries. And through that process, uh, one moment stood out very profoundly for me where I was laying on the table with my first sort of serious injury and had the you know team docs and physios basically assessing me and saying the words to me, we don't actually know what's wrong with you and we don't know what to do. And to this day, that moment has lived with me because I remember telling myself at that point in time, I don't want, any, I don't want anyone else to ever have to hear those words again. And it was at that moment I made the decision to start going back to school, but the decision about what to study, I didn't really know the direction. And at the time, I had a mentor in the personal training, corrective exercise, rehab space, and he suggested I go and see uh, someone he respected who was a sports chiropractor. I met him, was very impressed because he was able to figure out what was wrong with me and was able to get me back playing my sport. However, I was never able to really play again the same way I used to be able to play. But the fact that I was able to get back and play was uh, that first step. So because of his knowledge and his uh, ability to do what he did clinically with me, I wanted to become him. 
and whether he was a physio, I would have become a physio. If he was a sports physician, I would have become a sports physician. It just so happens he was a sports chiropractor and it's never been about, I guess, the professional label for me as to what people are. It's always been about competencies and I always felt that his competencies and his skill sets, I was like, I just wanted to, to become that. So off I went to university to become him and when I was doing my student clinic rounds, I came across a patient who I was assessing and the day that I was working with them, I was doing some rehab with their foot and they had asked me if I could check their neck because they thought they were getting a headache that was coming from their neck, which is a common type of complaint in society. So I said to them, yep, I'll have a look at your foot first and then we'll get into looking and assessing this neck and headache. So I was assessing the kinematics of the foot and checking the different joints and muscle strength and range of motion and all those types of things and ended up making it a clinical decision to manipulate that person's foot. And as they were laying on the table and I manipulated their foot, their headache instantaneously went away. And the patient actually asked me, what did you just do? And I actually thought instinctively as a student, I was like, did I just hurt them? I'm like, are you okay? And they're like, yeah, I'm fine. My headache's gone away. And they were asking, what did you just do? How does that work? And I didn't know. So I went to my mentor who was a sports chiropractor and in his teachings to me, as well as the teachings through my university studies, I understood, you know, orthopedics and biomechanics pretty well and understood like the kinematic chain and, and how we could have had an explanation if that person had have gotten off the table and started moving around and then gradually their, the headache went away, but this was manipulate the foot and the headache went away. And the only answer we had was the, the nervous system. That was the only thing that could really explain that. So as a result of going to my mentor, saying that to him, he came back to me with, well, you need to speak to some of these practitioners who have this real interest in neuroscience. And the words he used was you to go and see one of these neuro chiros. And I had no idea about it because my whole intention was to become my mentor. So ended up, chatting to a neuro Cairo, as they were sort of roughly called and fascinated by the conversation I had with that practitioner at that time. And that began the journey. As soon as I graduated, I, I continued down that path first of becoming a sports chiropractor, but always knowing I wanted to jump into studying neuroscience further. And a couple of years later, I finally had the opportunity to undertake uh, clinical neuroscience and rehabilitation post-professional training and just became absolutely fascinated and jumped right down the rabbit hole of neuroscience. And then with the passion of sport and with the passion of neuroscience becoming my two clinical sort of loves, um, the topic of concussion which now, of course, is you know, a lot of media headlines and a very uh, talked about topic uh, amongst general population, as well as specifically in collision and contact sports. And that topic of concussion sort of brought my two loves of sports, chiropractic and neuroscience together. And here we are today.
Yeah, it's incredible. And the, the body's ability to perform its everyday tasks and heal itself is just incredible. And, you know, you're making it your last work to understand the human body and understand the movement and, and all the different systems that are involved in rehabilitation, healing and preventative medicine. Just backtracking a little bit before we get into the whole realm of concussion, Brett, do you think that playing at the elite level enabled you to understand athletes in terms of um, management of injuries and, and treating them um, holistically as well? I think from a personal perspective, I do feel it helps because I feel I can connect with those people uh, more appropriately. H having that opportunity to know what it's like to push yourself to, you know, be, <laughs> to be yelled at, to have teammates, to, to try and ask more of yourself to not let teammates down, to know what it's like to be injured and to be trying to make that come back and, and do what you used to be able to do. I do feel from a connection point of view, from a, an emotional, uh, psychological point of view, I think that does help in the clinical context because sometimes I think that the person I'm speaking to understands that they know that I somewhat understand what they're going through. So I think it has allowed me to, I guess, have a little bit of a um, extra ability to uh, connect in clinic with these people. Yeah, definitely, Brett. And I think the role of an athlete is so unique and, and there's a lot of pressure placed on them to, you know, get the most out of their athletic potential through the, um, their best years of their sporting career. So I think, you know, having the ability to connect with that um, clinician sort of gives them that sense of security, knowing that they are in good hands as well. Now, Brett, we touched on concussion before. I know this is something that you're really, really passionate about. And I'm very eager to find out more about this field because there's a lot of talk in the media about this. For my listeners at home that may or may not know what concussion truly means, can you define concussion and how it does it occur? Yeah, so if we... I think it's a really good question there, Matt, because I think there's a little bit of uh, misunderstanding of concussion and then persistent post-concussion symptoms. So that definition of concussion is a, it's, it's a, a force. So a force that's uh, biomechanically generated to the head, the face, the neck, or anywhere in the body and then that force is transmitted to the head and that's a key point just to re-emphasize is that you do not have to be hit in the head to sustain a concussion you can be hit in the body and then that force is transmitted through the neck and through the head so the classic situation for people to think about is a whiplash injury or being tackled in a contact collision sport where you get tackled to the ground, you don't get hit with your head, but that head neck, neck sort of whip around side to side or forward and back. So we have a biomechanical force imparted to the head, face, neck or body with that force transmitted to the head. And then it causes a transient uh, disturbance in physiological processes that occur through the nervous system. And that key word there is transient. So if we look at what happens on a cellular level inside the brain, I think that serves us well for the concussion definition. So let's say I get a direct hit to the head for just the ease of visualizing it. That head impact 
then creates a process where this, uh, well, let's go with understanding nerves first of all. If people want to jump on Google at some point and look at this and look at what a nerve cell looks like and you've got the cell body and then you've got this long axon or this long pathway from the cell body. So if we think about the brain very generally, having all these cell bodies that are closer to the skull and then you've got all of these long arms or long legs that are transferring the cell bodies near the skull and those legs and arms are then going from one area of the brain down your spinal cord to your arms or to your legs or from the brain into the brainstem structures where all of our like breathing and heart rate and muscle tone and all those things live and so when we get that head impact we create a stretching of those arms and legs, those tracks, those pathways, those axons, just I'm saying the same words there. And I think that's an important thing because if you still jump on Google to this day and type in an image of a concussion, what you'll see is this picture of the brain hitting the inside of the skull, this coup counter coup type of injury where the, you see the brain hit inside the skull and you see this sort of red bruising aspect on the brain and then you see the opposite side of the brain then rebounding back and hitting the opposite side of the skull now that still occurs but the big thing we're now discovering is the major thing that's occurring is this stretching this twisting of those axons the long pathways now why that's important is when those pathways stretch when they get tractioned when they get twisted is there's little uh, gates, there's little holes inside the axons. And that allows particular molecules to go inside of the nerve and then outside of the nerve. So the two classic ones are sodium and potassium. If we get sodium coming into a cell, that will create activation of a cell very basically. And then the potassium moves out of the cell. And then when the potassium comes into a cell, and the sodium moves out of the cell, we sort of get a calming of the nerve, so very basically. So I get a head impact, I create that stretching, I get the holes, the gates inside the cell opening up, sodium comes running in, and it's like you just create this broad activation of all of these nerve cells because the sodium's coming in. Now, one of the unique things that the human nerve cells and all cells need to do in order to get the sodium back out of a cell, we have to use ATP. We have to use our energy source. So we digress here now and say, well, the human body to create energy, we would generally go and eat food. And regardless of what food and diets we eat, the brain wants to basically use glucose so that we can convert glucose into ATP. So the glucose we eat, so just think of eating a block of sugar, your brain wants that sugar, that glucose, so that you can convert that into the cellular energy, ATP. So the glucose that we eat has now become the energy that our cells can use, ATP. So tie it all back to again, again, together with that little digression. I have the head impact. I create that stretching, that twisting. I have sodium coming into the cells because those gates have been opened. 
but I now need to get that sodium back out of the cell. In order to do that, I need ATP on these special pumps called sodium potassium pumps. And that ATP is allowing me to try and get all of that sodium out. But the problem is, is because those axons have been stretched, the sodium just keeps flooding into the cells. And so your ATP is constantly being used, constantly being used to try and get the sodium back out. So the words that they use is a neurometabolic cascade, or the other words you'll often hear used is an energy crisis. So when we undergo the head impact from that moment, let's say today, on a Monday, I have that head impact. I have this energy crisis where I'm using up all of my ATP to get the sodium back out of the cells. And that process of trying to normalize getting sodium out and getting a balance between sodium, potassium, that ATP that we talk about, when we look at the research, they originally were saying that that process would take around about 21, 22 days. So from head impact to the recovery of that neurometabolic process was about 21 to 22 days. But with the advancement of research and some of the advanced neuroimaging techniques that are out there, so this is going beyond MRI and CT scan that we think of as fancy imaging. We're now talking about this advanced neuroimaging, things called diffusion tensor imaging, which is a fancier MRI or the diffusion tensor tractography. Again, another fancier MRI, quantitative electroencephalography, functional MRIs. So with these fancy imaging now, they're discovering that this process, this chemical metabolic cascade energy crisis, this may actually be taking up to 30 to 45 days to actually recover. So the definition of concussion is basically the time from when you have the head impact to when that cellular process ends. Now that's the physiology. So this is the confusing part because when we look at the clinical definition, so if I'm now an athlete and I go and have that head impact, I am assessed currently based on my symptoms. And so I'm asked, Matt, you know, how are you feeling today? And you might say, I've got a headache. I feel dizzy. I'm light sensitive. I'm sound sensitive. I'm really tired or I can't sleep, but I'm really tired or I feel like the world's spinning or I'm nauseous. You may relate to me. There's up to 22 identified symptoms with concussion. And the problem with those symptoms is a lot of other conditions can cause those symptoms. So you have the head impact, you create this metabolic cascade that's going on inside your brain. But as I'm looking at you, we're identifying are there any symptoms. Now the process for returning to sport or returning back to school is one of saying to Matt, all right, how are your symptoms today? And we want to identify and track people's 
recovery of symptoms. And again, this is the, the best practice that comes from the consensus statements and people can freely jump on Google and look those up. The, the most recent one was 2016. So they were supposed to meet again in October this year, but due to COVID-19, that meeting has been postponed. So we should be getting an update on the best research and the best evidence of concussion that should be coming out in the next, well, supposed to be this year, but the next 12 months. So as it stands right now, that confusion is we have a physiological process going on inside the brain, which says concussion right now is a 21 to 22 day process. But now with advanced imaging saying 30 to 45 days, but clinically, when that person's in front of you, these people are measured based on their symptoms. How are you feeling today, Matt? Well, have a day or two days rest. How are you feeling after that? Start some general activities of daily living. So try and do a little bit of work, the washing, the cooking, the cleaning, whatever it may be. Try and do some light aerobic activity. And if all of these things, if you're progressing through those things without symptoms, then you can keep progressing to the next stage and start adding in more activity and more activity and more activity until we can gradually return back to full-time school, full-time sport. So that process is said that concussion takes in adults 10 to 14 days for you to recover clinically. Again, clinically, that means symptoms. So in an adult, about 80% of people will clinically or symptomatically recover in 10 to 14 days. For children and adolescents, so basically up until the age of 18, it can take up to four weeks. So the definition of concussion in a clinical symptom sense, in adults, 80% of adults will recover in two weeks and 80% basically of adolescent and children will recover in two weeks. However, physiologically with the advanced research imaging, we're starting to see that that recovery may actually be longer than a month. Then the next definition, so that's concussion. And the next definition is persistent symptoms post the concussion. So this is when you have not recovered from your symptoms, if you're an adult within two weeks, or if you're a child or an adolescent within four weeks. So based on symptoms, if you haven't recovered in two weeks as an adult, anything beyond that, you are said to have persistent post-concussive symptoms, or the other words that we sometimes hear is post-concussion syndrome. Again, that same rule applies if you haven't recovered as a child or an adolescent in four weeks, you are said to have persistent post-concussive symptoms or post-concussion syndrome. The catch, of course, is if you look at it from the physiological sense with some of this advanced imaging, that suggests that maybe the concussion still hasn't quite recovered anyway. And this is where we need further research and more and more research so we can have a better understanding of the relationship between the physiology and then as the symptomatology or that clinical aspect.
I hope that wasn't too confusing. No, that's amazing. I love how you, you know, digress and, and painted a nice little picture of how their body uh, responds to a concuss concussion on a physiological level. It was amazing to, to hear. Now, Brett, before we go any further and talk about, you know, the diagnosis of concussion within athletes, because I know that that is um, something that is getting a lot of media attention at the moment. For the listeners at home, can you talk to us uh, about some of the acute symptoms that you will see um, when getting a concussion? So when you look at them, as we mentioned before, there's up to 22 symptoms that people can have after sustaining a concussion. So headache and dizziness are two of the more common uh, types of symptoms that people may have, but other people may also feel like that there is, um, well, let, let's just let's backtrack a little bit. So let's also talk about when the injury actually occurs. There's some things that can occur that you may see or may experience yourself. And if those things happen, you know that you've had a concussion. So if you sustain some form of impact, again, whether it's to the head, face, neck or body, and you lose consciousness, you've got a concussion. Now there might be actually something more significant there than a concussion, which is why it's very important to have an assessment to check that there's nothing more severe, like a, a significant injury to your neck or a more significant injury that may have occurred to like facial bones or to the brain itself, whether there might be some more damage beyond a concussion. So if I lose consciousness, which is only 10% approximately of all concussions, so the other way to say that is a lot of people would say, I didn't get knocked out. I didn't lose my consciousness. So I didn't get knocked out. I didn't have a concussion. Well, that's just not true. 90% of concussions don't lose consciousness. So if I lose consciousness, no, you already know tick that that person, you're saying that they've got a concussion until proven otherwise. Of course, we need an exam. Some other things that people may experience or may see happen on a sporting field is when you see people go all rigid, so their arms are stiffened by their side or their legs are really rigid or their arms are like pointed up in the air. That's called tonic posturing. So if we see that, you think concussion immediately. If you see someone get up after having some form of impact, and you watch them walking around and they're staggering around or they're falling back down again, or it looks like they're drunk as an example, immediately you think about concussion. So these are sort of some of those obvious signs that we may see immediately. They've lost consciousness. They've got this tonic posturing. They've got this motor incoordination, this staggering, this ataxia, this look of somewhat being drunk. Then there's another subtle one where people might get hit and you may actually start to see their body start to have like little mini seizures called impact seizures. So again, if we see that, we're thinking about someone um, having a concussion and we need to examine this person further. The other ones might be things that you see is like this memory loss where people have got post the trauma They've, they're forgetting everything. They've got this post-traumatic amnesia. So there's this memory loss or there may be confusion where they're, they, just, they just don't know what's going on. Um, there might be this process where um, they are, again, their behavior is changing. And so 
like the parents obviously with children are the best ones that identify this. They can just see that the child's confused, their behaviors changed, et cetera, et cetera. Out on the sporting field is where the team doctor or the team physio, the team uh, health provider, knowing the players, they can see those behavioral changes, et cetera. So these are some of the common things, or shouldn't necessarily say common things, but these are some of the obvious recognizable things for people. But if those things aren't occurring, you can still have a concussion and it's more of these subtler types of symptoms, headache, dizziness, brain fog, fatigue, nausea, light sensitivity, sound sensitivity. And again, 22 symptoms that people may report to you that could be related to them having a concussion. But again, we need the assessment to rule out other potential injuries, other diagnoses, and then make the official diagnosis of a concussion. There's a plethora of different symptoms that you know can overlap for different um, conditions in the body. And I guess it's, it's really hard from a medical point of view in terms of diagnosing these. But before we get into the athlete's diagnosis and the management in an elite setting, does there anything further is there anything further that happens when you lose consciousness in terms of the stretching of the axons or on a physiological level that causes you to lose consciousness or is that just your body's natural response to um to a really bad head trauma oh the, that the, the way you could look at it very simplistically is the areas within the human brain stem so that's the area that connects the brain to the spinal cord. And if people are trying to orientate themselves, if you were to imagine the level of your eyes down to the level of your mouth, that little window there, if you were able to sort of X-ray vision, MRI vision into that level, so the level of your eyes to the level of your mouth, that's basically where the brainstem lives. So between the brain and the spinal cord. Now in there, basically a lot of the automatic functions of humankind. And, and one of those areas is the sort of the reticular activating system. Um, and all those midline areas of the brain that communicate from the left side of the brain to the right side of the brain. When we have these impacts, if you imagine that stretching of the axons, if that was to have, depending on the angle of your head and depending on the angle of the impact and where it occurred as to where that stretching occurs in your nervous system, which is why people can present with so many different symptoms. And th there's a, a professor at a, one of the universities in Canada. And I heard him say this last year, uh, and this first time I'd heard uh, someone just come out blatantly and say it. But once you've seen one concussion, you've seen one concussion because every single concussion is different. And this, of course, is transitioning into the management of it. And this is why it's so important is you can't treat every concussion with the exact same therapy. Every concussion needs to be treated with its own individualized therapy. And so that idea coming back now to wherever I have that head impact, the body impact occurring to me, and depending on the position of my head and neck when that impact occurs, 
and then the, depending on the direction that my neck and head move with the impact will cause stretching through different areas and then of course the the amount of force that occurs the amount of g-forces that occur through the the neck and the brain of course will have a greater impact on whether or not someone is having the potential to lose consciousness or some of these other findings so it's very much an individual response based on positions biomechanics as well as the force of the impact yeah amazing and i guess in a an acute athletic situation and and you see athletes that come off the field after you know sustaining a head blow or a blow to the body and they're showing symptoms of concussion they have a concussion test you know they stay off for 20 30 minutes then they potentially go back onto the field and then play the next week but you mentioned before that there was 21 days 21 to 45 days for your body to maintain equilibrium and actually get over the concussion why are these athletes rushing back into, you know, playing at this elite level and potentially putting them themselves into further risk? That's a, um, I don't want to say that's a loaded question, Matt, but this is the, the hardest bit that we <laughs> as health providers um, have. So for me personally, it's a little bit easier because I'm in a clinical setting in my private practice and I'm not on the sidelines as much. I get to work on the sidelines with one particular sport. And, but the, the decision-making that occurs as to a diagnosis of concussion, if we have an athlete on the sideline, play, well, we're on the sideline, they play their sport, they have what looks like to be a concussion injury. But regardless, they've had an injury, you run out onto the field, or onto the court or depending on what the environment is of your sport, we get them out of that setting and we have them on the sideline and there is a standard concussion assessment process, which is the minimum assessment called the SCAT-5, the sports concussion assessment tool, which is a freely downloadable tool off of Google. So it's called the SCAT-5 for your listeners. And it is a systematic process of assessing a person for cognitive function and their memory and their balance and their um, symptom profile, uh, neck, neurological status, etc. So that process gets assessed either on the sideline or back in the change rooms or in a quiet environment. You know, we see with the NFL, they get put under the blue hooded tent on the sidelines last, last season. And so they run through that process. Now, if the athlete passes all of those tests, that athlete is considered to not have had a concussion at that time and, and then they're safe to return. And maybe they just had the wind knocked out of them or maybe it was a whiplash injury and purely just some pain that that person's experienced to their neck or whatever it may be in this example. But when they go back out onto the field, that athlete has been told to report and feedback any symptoms and depending on the elite level of the sport that that athlete may play even the referees in some sports or there are uh, paid medical spotters in some sports that are just watching the games and they're monitoring for injuries and those spotters or those referees can actually communicate with each other and then they communicate 
to the doctors on the sidelines for some sports to say, this athlete ain't doing too well. You need to come out here and, and, and get them off and evaluate them further. So if an athlete is returned back to sport because the decision on the sideline was that it doesn't look like they've sustained a concussion, that athlete will still get serially monitored. So once the game's over, they will be assessed again. And then the next day, et cetera, and the next day, et cetera. Now that's in elite level sport. Now the problem happens, of course, with the debate over when the person has been diagnosed with a concussion. And the tricky bit is you may not develop any symptoms or have any problems of a concussion at the time of the injury. It may develop days to weeks after. So that comes back to that serial exam. So we played sport today you saw an injury, you ran all of the necessary exams on the sideline, felt that they passed all the tests, they went back out onto the field, played the game out successfully, you assessed them after the game, they were still fine. You assessed them tomorrow, the next day, the end of the week, and they're still doing okay. And then maybe later next week, they start developing symptoms. And that's where this gets tricky. So that diagnosis bit can be tricky with concussion. And then the second part of your question there, Matt, which was, let's say you did make the diagnosis of concussion and this concept of returning athletes back to sport the next week. Now, the general rule in today's day and age, you're not really going to see that because the process of sustaining a concussion and going through the step-by-step -step return to play protocol is going to take about a week anyway. So if I was to sustain an injury today, the absolute fastest I could return back to sport would probably be next Monday. But as you said, this is the debate that's occurring within clinicians and within research as to whether or not athletes should be, or athletes or just everyone in general, should they be taking longer to return back to their sport because of what we are starting to see now with some of more of the advanced assessments. And for me personally, I use a lot of objective testing. So we measure people's eye movements. We measure people's balance. We measure people's coordination, gait parameters, reflexes, vestibular function. And so we do all of these objective tests. And so for me in clinic, I will not let an athlete return back to sport or even a member of the general public that wants to get back to their recreational sport. I will not let them return, even if their symptoms are gone, until they pass those objective tests for me also. So I'm a little bit harsher. I think it's warranted as well, Brett, because I know like being, you know, playing at sport, you always want to be involved and you're often in denial when you've had an injury or, or, you know, you're not listening to the, the professionals around you. So I guess you're trying to do everything and every, anything and everything to get back onto the field. And I think that's why the, the um, objective tests are so important in this you know, field. Well, that, that bit there for me, Matt, is absolutely true because the one thing with concussion is that, it's the invisible injury. It's the invisible scar, right? So if you see someone with a concussion, they basically look relatively normal. And so 
these people can be suffering immensely internally, but they look normal. Whereas if you sprain an ankle, you can see that that person's maybe in a brace or maybe they're in plaster, maybe they're on crutches, but when they're walking, you can see them limping and things like that. And, and we can see it. It's very tangible. And the process of those types of musculoskeletal injuries, we go through assessing, you know, range of motion, muscle strength test, you know, various balancing components, more dynamic things. And, and, and that assessment's very objective. So when you can get an athlete who is not feeling well because they've still got ongoing symptoms after sustaining a concussion, and when you can then do these objective tests to show you can see that those eye movements there are too slow or those eye movements are inaccurate, or you can see that your balance in this particular balance test, you can see that that is off. And these are all quantified with normative data. Now it becomes real. Now that athlete can go, no wonder I'm not getting better because that's not working properly. And so when we can usually fix those objective findings, is when we usually start to see that anyone who's got ongoing persistent symptoms, if you can fix those objective findings, you usually can get rid of their symptoms. Right. So, so interesting, this whole topic. I'm um, taking some notes down as well. I, I imagine all my listeners will be doing so too. You're a wealth of knowledge, Brett. Now, we spoke about, you know, the process of athletes going through the SCAP-5 concussion tests uh, post the trauma. What happens if the athlete passes all those tests and then gets concussed again? What are those dangers about um, sustaining multiple concussions in the one sort of realm? Yeah, the, the, the biggest issue that people may have heard about or come across is this idea of second impact syndrome. And so we're going through a process where we discussed that pathophysiological neurometabolic, you know, energy crisis cascade before. And when that's occurring, we've obviously got a lot of different cellular responses going on inside those nerve cells, inside the brain, wherever that may be. And if you then sustain a second impact on top of that, these are the, the injuries that people talk about can become like life-threatening. And, and this is where going back to that process of making the diagnosis becomes important because if you've seen someone lose consciousness or that tonic posturing or the confusion or whatever those signs are that you see, you remove that person from the field of play, whatever that sport is, no matter how much they beg you to get back out there. Because what we don't want to see is a process where they've had a concussion and then they're left out there and then they sustain another impact and potentially undergo that second impact syndrome, um, which of course can be life threatening, but just that process of then just sustaining another, you know, trauma to the actual head and, and basically increasing the amount of, you know, neurometabolic energy crisis, like enhancing it and making it worse. The same as like tearing a muscle, and then going on running on that muscle or lifting a weight on that muscle over and over again and tearing it further and further. Yeah, definitely. And I guess we spoke about it before that it's not as easy as just looking at the athlete and, and making those diagnoses because, you know, it's, my, it's with the invisible scar that we spoke about before. 
Now, Brett, we've spoken about, you know, those acute sort of um, symptoms and, and things that the doctors would run the athletes through in terms of a concussion test. Is there a link between, you know, multiple concussions and degenerative neurological disorders later in life, whether that's a singular concussion or, or multiple concussions sustained throughout their playing career? Yeah. So uh, before I answer that one too, Matt, I just want to throw in one line that's a very useful thing in terms of just the diagnosis of concussion. So if you're a parent or if you're an athlete yourself or whatever it may be and, and you're involved in sport and you think you may have sustained a concussion or you observed someone and you think that person's had a concussion, when in doubt, sit them out. That's the basic line to take with that. So if you're not sure, you remove them from that sporting field or that environment, wherever they are, and you go and get them assessed. So when in doubt, sit them out. Really but the, coming back... Coming back to that question there, Matt, and so I hope the listeners have seen it. This is a difficult conversation for me to have because I have my personal opinions on things, but what I want to try and make sure I share with everyone is the giving people hints of some of my opinions, but I really want to present the evidence and the research. So what are the facts? Because what we don't want to have here is where people are going, this is what Brett said and this is Brett's opinion. It's like, well, no, most of the stuff that I'm giving you guys is straight out of the research and straight out of the literature. And so with that little statement made, that topic of problems later in life and, and the one, of course, that everyone is hearing about because of the movie Concussion with Will Smith as well as how our media sensationalizes things. Um, uh, I personally, yeah, uh, I'm a little bit upset with the media with everything that's going on in the, in the current climate with the world. So this topic of concussion too, uh, the media has sensationalized a number of different situations, but there are risk factors with having a concussion and then developing chronic traumatic encephalopathy later in life. Now, it's a risk factor. Now, that's just the same as saying, we all know that if you ate chocolate all day and every day, you know it's a risk factor for developing diabetes or stroke or high blood pressure or heart problems. We all know it's a risk factor, but it doesn't necessarily mean it'll happen. So when it comes to neurodegenerative problems later in life and CTE, chronic traumatic encephalopathy is the big one that people are hearing about. What we also know is you, you can develop CTE from pain medications. You can develop CTE from never having a head trauma that's been documented in your entire life. So you could develop CTE without ever having a concussion. So there's, as we're starting to understand CTE better and the important thing for people to understand is right now we can just generally say you cannot diagnose CTE until someone has died so it's a diagnosis like post-mortem at autopsy so the CTE diagnosis is not something that we can clinically diagnose like right now that you know learning more and the research continues to evolve but since the topic has been evolving, especially over the last decade, 
there's been a lot more investigation into it and the criteria for the diagnosis of CTE has become more refined. Whereas once upon a time, it was very, very broad. So a lot of people were being diagnosed with CTE that technically by today's standards didn't have CTE. So concussion, is there a risk factor with CTE later in life? Yes. But just because you've had a concussion does not mean that you will develop CTE. Interesting. And I guess, you know, the, the research is always um, updating and there's constantly people that are, that are eager to find out more about this. It's such an interesting topic. Now, Brett, thank you so much for taking us through, you know, the process of what happens acutely with concussion and then obviously long-term effects. I want to talk about people's lifestyle and the role that that plays in terms of concussion prevention and um, management of a concussion. Are there things that make us more susceptible to concussion and what role does lifestyle play in, in that? Well, I guess the biggest one right now really that's been researched and we've got numbers on is rule changes and rule modifications. So the sort of most preventative or whether we talk about uh, injury risk reduction or injury prevention, whichever way you want to use those words, we know that by modifying the rules of sports that's had in terms of a lifestyle thing, that's had the most impact that we can see so far. The example of helmets, wearing helmets in particular sports, uh, as it stands right now, helmets do not prevent concussion. They do not help with concussion at this point in time. They do help with like more significant injuries like fractures and bleeds and, and lacerations, but they don't help with concussion. So that helmet part, is one mouth guards are another one. Now I'm, it's not that we're not going to suggest if you want to wear a helmet or mouth guards, that's we're saying, I'm not saying don't wear them because they have other benefits, but in terms of using them for concussion alone, it's like, no, they, they, they don't have the evidence. Now, when you start to talk about other lifestyle elements, that one there is going to be more of, I guess, small, research like case study individual types of things but there's not really anything specifically from a lifestyle aspect that we can definitively go yeah this is is going to help you now there are little things out there that suggest certain uh dietary elements uh, certain foods and and things that you eat may help you but again nothing official there with that. And then, so what a lot of this becomes is more of a, a hypothesis or it becomes more of an extrapolation from the research. So one for me that makes a lot of sense, and there is some research out of the University of Cincinnati that have shown this, which is eye, head, vestibular exercises. Uh, there's also some evidence in high school athletes out of the US with neck strengthening and neck endurance type of exercises. So the stronger your neck is for longer, that can be uh, preventative or reduce the injury risk. 
but also out of the University of Cincinnati, they've shown that having faster eye movements, more coordinated head, eye, inner ear, your vestibular system, that balance area uh, that most people think about, when those things are coordinated and working faster and working better, there's also been shown that there is some injury prevention, injury risk reduction by having that. Now, that one makes the most sense to me because if you can see someone coming to hit you quicker, you can either get out of the way quicker and not get hit or you can better protect yourself. And this, of course, is one of the biggest issues, say, in Aussie rules football. It's one of the most unique sports in the world because it's 360 degrees. And you can be going for a ball and get hit from behind. And like most, most sports are usually it's face to face and you don't, you, you, so you see it coming. Whereas that's one of the uh, things with Aussie rules that makes it unique. And also from an injury point of view with concussion is that some, some of the hits that you're taking, you, you don't see them coming. And they're the ones that can be quite profound sometimes with, the, the amount of symptoms and the recovery time that people take. So rule changes, some things when it comes to diet and lifestyle. Now, I know maybe you're thinking about talking about whether you're having a pro-inflammatory diet versus a, a more, you know, and obviously there's arguments out there over going like vegan plant-based whole food diet versus going to a, the carnivore style diet on the opposite end of the spectrum to a more like intermittent fasting style diet, a ketogenic diet. There's lots of these diets out there. And with that one there, there's, there's nothing there that's definitive as it relates to concussion. You know, there's some, as we said, there's some little small studies with some suggestions, but again, the consensus statement and the world of concussion, there is not enough evidence behind that, but rule changes and some suggestions in some more of the current literature that are going in certain groups, neck strengthening and endurance, and this idea of eye, head, vestibular coordination and speed improving those types of aspects can be preventative. Hope that answers the question. Yeah, definitely, Brett. I love that how you're always, you know, referring back to science, and and it's um quite inspiring to to get your opinion on the data as well as you know just reciting what studies are already out there, and and you know just providing people with that information. Now, Brett, we spoke about you know all of the the things associated with concussion, but we haven't really touched on the rehab process. We sort of mentioned, you know, there was light duties for up to 45 days for the body to actually regenerate. If you were in clinic and you, you know, were treating an athlete that has just sustained that concussion, what is your rehab process and what do you prescribe? I know it is individualized, but what are the, you know, the basic rules of thumb that you use? Yep. So if I'm dealing with uh, like an elite level athlete, uh, even semi-elite level athletes. So we're not talking necessarily about being professional. That's their job. But some of these guys have got full-time jobs, but then go and compete in their particular sports. They can get paid to play their sports. And th these guys, you know, they want to get back because it's also a paycheck. Um, and, and, and that's that's very important, male or female, I want to say, guys, sorry. Um, and so when we're looking at the rehab process, I follow the consensus guidelines, which is, day basically six steps so day one to two so 24 to 48 hours of rest and what you're looking for is that the person 
is becoming less symptomatic when they're resting. Hopefully no symptoms. Then we can get the person on the next day to, so I'm basically reeling you guys off the sort of the six steps for standard clinical recovery return to sport. And then I'll add my bits in. Okay. So 24 to 48 hours is resting and allowing that symptom reduction. Hopefully symptoms have gone. Then we want the person to be doing light activities of daily living, the things just around the house, their normal sort of duties. And we don't want those to be reproducing symptoms. So if we've now gotten to the point that these guys are doing light activities and it's not exacerbating their symptoms, they can move to the next day. So let's just say this is day three for simplistic one day arrest, one day of light activities. Now they're up to day three now, which is now we get them to start doing some light, say aerobic exercise, some light activity. So go for a little bit of a brisk walk, maybe sit on a you know, stationary bike and ride the stationary bike some light aerobic activity. Can they do that without symptoms? Well, yeah. Okay. And then day four, we're up to now, and we can start to introduce some more, say sports specific things that might be dribbling a basketball, or it might be like just kicking the football, handball, the football, it might be, you know, shooting a netball, hitting a tennis racquetball, just, you know, practicing some of those skills as an example, while they're doing like that aerobic exercise. And if they can do that without exacerbation of their symptoms, then what they need is they need to be able to get medical clearance to be able to return to sort of this, this next step of, you know, team training. And you can argue that this step and the next step is sort of a bit of a hybrid. So you go, well, I'm going to let them go back to doing their team training, but that team training, they're not allowed to have any contact. So they go back to their sport and they can do all the things with the club, with their team, where they're doing all of the skills, all of the drills, but anything that has contact involved with it, they have to sit out of those drills. But if you can do all of those non-contact drills with the team, then the next thing is you definitively need to get medical clearance to be able to return back to your sport that you play. And that doctor is giving you clearance to go, yes, this person is clear to resume contact training. They resume contact training. If they can get through that, without getting symptoms, then the following day, they're allowed to go back to their sport and play. Now that of course is based on first thing, they've got no more symptoms when they're doing all their trainings, so they're allowed to go back to their competition and compete. But of course that person has to feel confident that they can. The coach of course has to feel that that person is ready and they've got the skill level. So those are obviously those other decisions that need to come into play, but that's the very basic process of return to sport that most sporting associations around the world would follow a very basic uh, copy of that progression. Okay. Any, any questions just on the basic return to sport there, Matt? No, I think that's pretty, pretty self-explanatory. And I guess, you know, it has its own um, sort of adaptations based on the individual's um, like progression through those stages. Correct. And so at any point, if let's say we got to day four and you got symptoms on day four, when you were trying to do that particular sports specific type of work, what happens in that return to sport process is then you go back to the stage before. And then so on day five, you would be doing sort of day three again. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. So you go to day three and then you try day four again, which would be actually day six. 
and you so those stages and and again for people that want that sort of in writing so they can look at it again jump on google type in the concussion in sport consensus statement the fifth edition that's on british journal of sports medicine i'm still pretty sure it's a it's a free download for everyone and that they have a flow chart with just or a, a, like a, a tabled box where it says, this is stage one, this is basically what you're doing. This is stage two, this is what you're doing. And so it's broken down for those that want to look into that a bit further. And I'll have them but in the show notes for you guys as well, some direct link. Personally, I've got my objective tests as well. Now, if you are an athlete with me and you want to return to sport, if I put you on a balance platform and I'm measuring your different balance parameters, whether you can balance with your eyes open balance with your eyes closed. I put you on foam on an unstable surface and we balance you again with your eyes open and eyes closed. And we have a force plate that's measuring you, checking your gender and your age, the normative data. If you're not at 90% for me on those tests, you, you can't go back to sport. And I tell all my athletes that at the start. I want balance to be 90%. So that way I know that I'm not like putting you out there. When I, when I say I know, I'm comfortable in those sort of numbers going, I am reducing this person's injury risk because I know that objectively they are doing the right things from a balance point of view. But I also do the same thing with eye movements. And so all of their eye movements that we're checking for, they need to be within a standard range for me with their accuracy, with their speed. And that's all the different types of eye movements. And it's an important one for the people out there that listen to this to understand that people go, why do you see, you know, like the doctors out on the field, you know, make the athlete look at their thumb and do these things. Well, each type of eye movement and there's the sort of five categories of eye movements and I'll try and break them down for the listeners. But if you, if you imagine you put your thumb in front of you and you then just stared at your thumb, that's called gaze fixation or gaze holding. Now, the ability to do that uses certain areas of your nervous system. Then if we make that thumb move right and left, and you have to follow it with your eyes only, or we make that thumb move up and down, or even on diagonals or in circles, whatever it is that that doctor's doing, that ability to follow that thumb with your eyes uses other areas of your nervous system. But then if I put like two thumbs, if you guys put two thumbs up in front of you, and then you're going to look at your right thumb, then your left thumb, right thumb, left thumb, right thumb, left thumb, as fast as you can. And then we did that say up and down, the same thing, put two thumbs up and down and up, down, up, down, up, down. The speed of your eye movements, the accuracy of the eye movements, those types of uh, eye movements, again, use a different area of the nervous system Again, if we put that thumb back in front of us and we stare at the thumb and then you turn your head left and right, so the eyes stay on the thumb, the thumb stays still, but then your head moves left and right or your head moves forward and backwards, so like a no-no movement or a yes-yes movement, that again uses a different area of the nervous system. And then if we made that thumb that you're looking in front of you and we bring that thumb in towards your nose, like trying to make you go cross-eyed, Again, that uses a different area of your nervous system. So we do these eye movements because it allows us to assess that person's nervous system. And then along with other tests like balance that we mentioned before, 
along with different reflexes, muscle strength, sensation, you know, the ability to detect sharp versus dull, light touch, vibration, these different senses, we put all of that together with cognitive testing, with other, and the fancy words here are sensory motor tests, so tests from your neck to your eyes to your ears, and we put all of this together along with coordination and walking and doing cognitive tasks while they do these other normal reflexive activities such as walking. So we might get people to walk and while they're walking, I'll get them to do times tables or say the months of the year backwards, etc. So we're making their brain have to cognitively work while they're trying to do a normal task. Now, all of these things that I'm sharing with you, there is tons of research behind all of these things in concussion to show you that there are potential injuries to those systems, but also to how you use those tests to make diagnoses and then you formulate your rehab strategies on those areas. So yes, we've got our return to sport guidelines, but you need to be as an athlete for me. And I, I this is an extrapolation because we know that say for a lower limb injury, that if I was to roll my ankle or tear my calf or hamstring, whatever it may be, and we do all of my rehab and we get ready to go back to sport. And when you go back to sport, what we know in the research is you want to have at least 90% symmetry from your left and right legs. So your left calf, you strained that and you know, you're doing all your rehab. You want to make sure that your left and right calf are within 90% of each other on all the tests later on. So I use those parameters, that idea of 90%. If, if that's good enough for the lower limb, I'm like, well, that's going to be at least something I can use for the nervous system. So the certain tests that you just have to flat out pass because we know that there are reflexes that just should work or obviously should or shouldn't work. So if they're not working, we're going to make sure that we get them working if we can. And then everything else we want within 90%. So we do those tests, you get to within 90%, but the examination also tells us going back to the eye movements, if I'm trying to follow someone's thumb and let's say I'm following that person's thumb to the right, we've got certain muscles in the eyes that do that. Then the nerves that go from the brain stem to those muscles. Then you've got the area of the brain from a vision point of view that sees the thumb that then sends a signal to another area of the brain that allows you to follow the thumb that sends that signal down to your brainstem to those nerves. So we can see how important this becomes because someone's eye movement that may have been affected for you might be different for me and might be different for the next person. And so the exercises that I choose to use to rehab that are going to be very, very different. Again, their balance testing, their eye movement testing, their vestibular testing, coordination testing, autonomic nervous system testing, which includes blood pressure, heart rate, as well as exercise tolerance. So I put my concussion athletes on a treadmill and we basically try to fatigue them to see if that brings on symptoms because that, that's probably one of the most researched tests that exists out there where we know that looking at exertional tolerance or the physiology of that person's ability to be able to exercise 
very, very common to see that uh, being affected in concussion and with all the different therapies that are out there, that has probably got the most research behind it to support its use in helping you recover from concussion also. Amazing, Brett. You're an absolute wealth of knowledge. And I guess, you know, it's beyond just the actual concussion symptoms in itself and, you, you know, constantly taking it further. And there's always something that could potentially be um, affected by that trauma. That's why you do those comprehensive tests on all different parts of the, um, of the brain itself and the nervous system. Is that correct? Oh, absolutely, Matt. Absolutely. And, and going back to that professor out of Canada, and as he said, once you've seen one concussion, you've seen one concussion. And so each person needs to be assessed and, and, and even the research and the consensus statement, this is exactly what they support. Each person needs to have a comprehensive exam and then an individualized treatment tailored to the findings that you determine off that examination. So very, very important that you are thoroughly examined when it comes to concussion. So I know for me and I know a number of my colleagues that uh, I work with, our, our exam for this takes about three hours. And so it's a very lengthy exam. And, uh, and also too, the, the catch with those types of exams is that some people it takes longer because just doing the tests makes them become symptomatic and we have to allow them the time to be able to recover to be able to continue on with the test so it is a very very important uh, thing for people to be aware of about this comprehensive nature of the exam and then how those treatments are individualized to you because you can't just jump on Google and YouTube and social media and you can't look at someone telling you, this is what you do to treat a concussion. It just doesn't work that way. And if it does work for you, that's great. You were lucky. You had a blindfold on, you threw a dart at the dartboard and you hit bullseye because sometimes these things will work. Now, if anything, if you're going to shotgun anything, yeah, the aerobic exercise, but that aerobic exercise is going to work even better for you if that's been examined to find out what your specific individual level is and then taking that finding and applying that aerobic exercise for you based on your exam findings. And I just, I'm really hoping that that point's getting home of individualizing it for you based on your exam. Yeah, definitely, Brad. I know we were chatting about this in the last consult about the role that the, the human body and, and its systems play. It's just incredible. And, and it's amazing to, to go in depth and really find out what happens on a physiological level. And, you know, I guess one last question I want to ask you, Brett, you know, your eagerness to always ask why and find an alternative method and, and really, you know, develop your repertoire to be able to give people and give your, your clients a comprehensive test to be able to diagnose and treat and rehabilitate injury. I, I think it's so important. And, and why do you think that other allied health professionals should adopt this same mentality and how can they do so? Um, well, the why, uh, <laughs> it's always a tricky one for saying this because I know it's being recorded and I've got to try and say it the right. The why is because we, we work in healthcare as health professionals to help our fellow human beings. We swear 
a Hippocratic oath that we will do no harm. And we got into this game in healthcare of service to others above self. There is no higher purpose. So we as health providers owe it to our communities, to our patients, to our clients, whatever word you want to use there, we owe it to these patients to give them the best service. Now, if you as a healthcare provider, let's say you got ill, do you want to go and see the doctor who graduated 40 years ago and has done nothing to further their knowledge when science has moved beyond that? There is no way known you're going to go and see that doctor. You're going to go and see the doctor who understands and is the most current and has got the best current evidence and research. And so as health providers, we owe it to our patients to serve and to do the absolute best and science and research continues to evolve and as a result health providers all need to continue to evolve now my opinion on this is i'll just share this type of story of where we've got all these different professions that exist yeah we've got physiotherapists we've got chiropractors osteopaths osteopaths, myotherapists, personal trainers, exercise physiologists, Chinese medicine, nurses, doctors, surgeons, dentists, insert whatever. If there was one profession that had the answer to everything, we would all be at school learning that particular skill. But not one profession has that. And this is then why you've got specialists within medicine. They go and specialize in a particular area. But where I want to take that next step, because I, I don't mind and I don't really care what people's professional title is. What I care about is competencies, as I mentioned very early on. So let's look at the nervous system for a second. And let's tie this in to the importance, what I think, of why we all need to continue to study, but also study in other people's disciplines and other people's fields, even though people go, well, I'm a chiropractor or, you know, I study and do my continuing education in like chiropractic fields or physios in, in whatever and Chinese med in Chinese med and medicine in pharmacology or whatever. But let's just look at this point here. If I look at the nervous system and what do we need to do to keep the nervous system alive? Well, everyone knows the saying, use it or lose it, right? Everyone knows that saying. And that, that applies for a nerve cell. If you don't use a nerve cell, it basically gets replaced with other areas that are, that are being used. So um, uh, maybe a better example of that is because I've got this picture in my mind and I'm not really sharing it over a voice in, on a podcast. But if, I, if I've got um, my right arm and I strap up my right arm to the side of my body and I don't use it, we know that the maps of your brain, they remap. So the representation of your right arm and your brain starts to change. If we were to tie your fingers together and check the maps of your brain, we would see that your hand starts to look like, like an oven mitt in your brain. So this idea of use it or lose it, we have to activate a nerve cell. Well, so how do you activate it? Well, any nerve cell, so we've got vision, we've got smell, we've got taste, we've got hearing, we've got balance, we've got body sensations from muscles, from joints, from your skin. 
you've got the movement, you've got your voice, you've got all these things that the nervous system is doing, right? So we can activate our nervous system by so many, so many options. But what else does your nervous system need to stay alive? We talked about this before with a concussion. You need to have fuel. We need glucose, yeah? So now all of a sudden to better understand the nervous system, you need to understand the metabolic system. You need to understand gut and nutrition and digestion because that in turn is going to affect the nervous system. Does that make sense, Matt? Yeah, definitely. I think all it right. Into- well, next layer, I'm, I'm just sorry. I'm just going to keep going. Sorry, mate, because you have got me on a bit of a rant here. I love so, it. I so, love it. so the ne- so the next step with that though is what else does a nerve need to stay alive? Well, it needs oxygen, right? So we need oxygen. Well, everyone knows we need oxygen to be able to, you know, to breathe and to stay alive. But we all know that, right? What what happens if you drown? Uh, if you drown, you know, you're depleting the brain of fuel and oxygen, right? The heart stops beating. You're not delivering the, the fuel and the oxygen to the brain. So you need oxygen for nerve cells to function. Well, you also need oxygen for that glucose that we talked about before. You need oxygen as part of the Krebs cycle. So you use oxygen and different things like CoQ10 and vitamin B and hydrogen ions. And these things go through the Krebs cycle so that you can turn glucose into ATP so that your cells can use it as energy. So now all of a sudden to understand the nervous system, you had to understand food and digestion and metabolic processes, but you also then had to understand the respiratory system and then the delivery of that oxygen to the brain. Well, that comes from that cardiovascular system. So now all of a sudden to understand the nervous system, you have to understand everything. And so the idea of like musculoskeletal injury and, and, and sport, and we talk about, oh, like, you, you know, you've, you've injured your hamstring or you've got a, a knee problem. And then we start to use various like technologies to measure, you know, muscle strength from left and right. Or we then go even step further. We start talking about rate of force development between these things. Well, what helps control that? The nervous system. So now all of a sudden you're assessing a muscle, but the thing that's firing that muscle and making it fire in a sequence with other muscles has got to do with the maps of your brain, the motor patterns that you've got from your cerebellum to your brain and how you coordinate that. And then you've got the signals from the brain via the pathways of the nerves to that particular muscle and the recruitment of that muscle efficiently. But then that muscle also needs its blood flow and metabolic aspects for it to fire and continue to fire. And so it doesn't become lactic, et cetera. And then you've got your lactic tolerance. And can, can we just see that in order to serve people, we it's lifelong learning. Now, and the one thing that you've heard me say this, Matt, before, it's like people, you know, will always ask is like, I just, I don't know enough. And as a result, if I'm going to work in healthcare and I want to try and serve my patients to the best I can, I've got to study for the rest of my life. And the minute I stop studying, I have to get out of the game because that's when I'm no longer doing the best service to the people, which is why they're coming and spending their hard earned money that they have got from their work to try and get better. And so we all as health providers need to serve our patients with that in mind. And that, that's just how I think. And a lot of people 
can disagree with me. That's okay. This is why we've got our own, you know, perceptions of things and opinions and beliefs, but that that's my, my take on it and service to others above self. There is no higher purpose. Brett, I'm absolutely blown away by that, mate. And I could not agree more. I think, you know, holistic management and holistic health and holistic treatment is gaining a lot of momentum these days. And I really, really think that it's evident in everything that you do in your practice that you are obtaining a lifelong education and constantly trying to better yourself to, you know, get the results within your patients. So it's a testament to you, mate. You're an incredible clinician and um, you're spreading an important message. Very kind of you to say that, Matt. Thank you. (laughs) In saying that, Brett, I am just coming to the end of the podcast, mate. I've really, really enjoyed this uh, accurate description about how we started off with concussion. Now we're into, you know, allied health professionals and how to just better your yourself as a human being. What are your future plans, mate? What does the next five years have in store for you? Oh, wow, mate. That's, that's, that's deep. Um, well, as, as it stands right now, one of the things that I'm finding clinically for me, uh, so let's say we talk short term and then maybe a bit of long term, but what I'm seeing is um, in, especially with the current, climate of the world you know we're, we're in COVID-19 and we're in especially in Victoria here we're in some tough situations that we're constantly evolving with and some people are very unfortunate with livelihoods and businesses being lost and some of these permanently um, and you, you know you really feel for these people but watching that relationship between emotions and social factors and psychology involved with injury and life and relationships and seeing how that has an influence on people clinically that that bit for me is where i'm currently getting upskilled i am looking at uh basically enrolling in a course to further my ability with the the psychosocial elements of health so we all know the current model in healthcare is to approach your client your patient the community in a biopsychosocial model and so i'm currently trying to upskill myself better in that field so i can better serve the people who are seeing me with strategies on understanding various emotions and thoughts and feelings and how that has a relationship to their particular presentation. And that doesn't happen to everyone, but I just want to be able to have better skills in that space to give people better strategies to deal with that. Um, because we all know that's very, very important. This is why, you know, psychologists and counselors and, and, and psychiatrists exist. This is a very, very important space. But when people are coming in, just say with pain, they don't necessarily understand how pain has uh, anything to do with what they're thinking or feeling. And, you know, as a result, if, you know, if you use the inappropriate wording to these particular people, um, you know, a lot of these people interpret as you say, saying, Oh, all this pain's in my head. I'm like, well, no, I'm not, but that's how it gets perceived. And as a result, you want to have those appropriate strategies and skills to be able to help these people uh, get started, you know, in this pain science journey for them to help their recovery and then be able to like breach that topic of if it's outside of the skill set, how do you get them across to, you know, a counselor, a psychologist, psychotherapist, whoever is appropriate to better help that person. 
um, without necessarily offending them. Um, and, and then they don't go and get that help. So that, that's the area of space that I'm currently focusing on to, uh, to help better serve. And then I guess the progression after that is really seeing what things in clinic I realize I have further weaknesses in and want to get better at, but then also to where the research and the science goes, because as that evolves, you can start to realize that you need to get upskilled in that space to, to better serve. So it becomes a very fluid and dynamic evolution, I think, based on science as well as the clinical population that I am seeing at that particular point in time. Barbara, I absolutely love that, mate. You're definitely inspiring me to uptake further knowledge in different various fields. And um, yeah, I can't thank you enough for the podcast, mate. It's been incredible hearing your um, your philosophy and everything that you put into practice that I've seen. Um, so thank you so much, Brett. Before we wrap up the podcast, mate, where can people get in contact with you? Oh, thanks, Matt. Um, people can, my website for my clinic is www uh, it's dot optimize with a z cairo so optimize cairo.com uh, you can find me on social media at optimize cairo or at brett jaros um, always happy to try and chat and talk to people where i can in my schedule uh, hopefully the listeners of your podcast uh, got something out of this apologies if anyone did get offended, but if you did, that generally means that there was a message there that, that hit home. So I always look at that as take the positive out of that particular message. But uh, again, apologies if it did upset anyone and just hope that people can take some things out of it. Amazing. Dr. Brett Jarrows, thank you for your time, mate. Uh, thanks again for the opportunity, Matt. Well, to say we covered some territory during that episode would be an understatement. Thank you so much, Brett, for your time and giving us an insight into the realm of concussion and exactly what the process looks like from trauma through to recovery. So thank you again. Thanks again for tuning in this week, folks. I hope you guys got as much out of that episode as I did. Don't forget to hit subscribe on the podcast app or on Spotify and leave a rating and a review. The more ratings the podcast receives, the higher it ranks and therefore the more people that can have access to this incredible information. Thanks for listening, folks. I shall see you next week.